Welcome to an exciting edition of Rebellion's educational series. We have a legendary tech investor with us to tell us about the future of machine learning post-COVID. Dr. Bill Janeway is a Marshall Scholar from Princeton, Cambridge, has taught at Princeton, teaches at Cambridge. He was the vice chairman of Warburg Pincus. One of his investments uh, returned over a hundred times uh, and he is really both brilliant and acute and will give us a fantastic kind of uh, summary of what we should expect uh, for the future of machine learning. And thank you, Bill, so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Delighted to be with you, Alex. My pleasure. So what are you most excited about right now in, in machine learning? I know, I know that there are, you have so much to say about it. And by the way, everyone should check out Bill's recent book, which uh, came out maybe a year and a half ago and is an absolutely excellent read about uh, FinTech. But uh, right now, Bill, what are you most excited about with machine learning, especially during these COVID times? Well, I think the, the, bro the broadening range of applications, probably the most exciting development recently has been in natural language processing with these enormous uh, parametric systems that are beginning to generate text that is recognizably consumable by human beings without embarrassment. Um, but there are other areas where the achievements may seem spectacular, but they actually are really quite constrained. So I'm unimpressed with the various triumphs of machine learning systems in playing games where the rules are set in advance and the players can't change them. Now, chess is a complicated game. Go is an even more complicated game. But the fact is that the games that really matter are the games we play with each other where we are negotiating the rules on the fly. Exactly. And that's not an area where machine learning has yet been able to demonstrate much effectiveness. Well, Bill, I couldn't agree more with you. In fact, I'm telling people all over the place that we're at the dawn of the dawn of machine learning. They need a, a, a vacuum-like environment. They must be dealt with with the most kid-like gloves, and even then you have an issue. I mean, it's, it's an extremely delicate process. And right. even when I have eight students dealing with one data set, it's amazing. I'll see eight different errors in applying the same machine learning to the same data set. So, right. You know, it, well, it's important to recognize that this wave of advances in what are generically referred to as artificial intelligence, this is not the first wave. No. And we've had at least two major waves before. One that actually predates me, goes back to the 60s. It involved a very simplistic, first of all, the computers that were being deployed by today's standards. I mean, my $12 digital running watch has more power than those systems had. Um, and things like the iPod were unimaginable, the iPad were unimaginable uh, in those days. Um, but the, the, the first real wave that took off was what came to be known as expert systems the notion that we could codify human decision-making in such a way that machines could emulate human decision, human judgment. And this proved to be, on the one hand, uh, grotesquely overstated, and on the other, 
practically very useful because what we were talking about were simply listing if-then rules. If this condition happens, then this action is triggered. Well, there's no software in the world today that isn't populated with you know, enormous numbers of if-then rules, but it's hardly artificial intelligence. It's a very simple trigger response. So having survived the 1980s wave of expert systems masquerading as artificial intelligence, I do start with a certain skepticism about the invocation of the term artificial intelligence. I tend to tell my, my younger colleagues uh, at Warburg Pincus, where I remain uh, aligned and affiliated, that when they hear somebody telling them that they've got a breakthrough in artificial intelligence and they're using that term, they should know that they are being promoted. What you want to know is just what is the application space? What, are the, what is the architecture of the algorithmic system being applied? And don't generalize, let alone go to the cosmic level of saying, we've solved artificial intelligence. Oh, wow, Bill, I couldn't agree more with you. It's uh, fantastic. As someone who's been teaching AI now for a decade, it, it's, can, it can be very frustrating when people say, oh, it's, uh, it's a very, very cutting edge uh, AI. You'll be, you'll be super taken with the company. And I just roll my eyes and think to myself, oh, God, I just, you know. Well, you know, Alex, the, um, the reason we have to be appropriately skeptical is because of some of the ways the applications are spilling out into areas that really matter for society, for politics, for financial and economic decision-making. So the, there's no question that these systems, these machine learning systems, are very powerful at recognizing patterns yeah. in data, both patterns they've been trained on and patterns they haven't been trained on. No, I mean, but, they're, they're more sophisticated versions of Turing's machine, which helped uh, the British back in the day. That's all they are. And I, I, I always... Well, yeah, um, that's a good point that what Turing was doing was looking for patterns in coded data in order to be able to interpret the German ciphers. And this is what uh, most of the, the pattern recognition, the image recognition systems are doing. Yeah, but, Turing is the one who uh, sunk Bismarck. He doesn't get enough credit for that. He, Alan Turing gets a lot of credit. He does get a, yeah, he gets a lot of credit. <laughs> Even when he's not played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, the, um, but but here, here's a set of challenges, questions, issues, where um, I think you are absolutely right in your learned skepticism about the hype going on. Now, the first is there are some very good uh, distinctions made. There's an attempt to say, well, these systems are good at prediction, but we wouldn't rely on them for judgment. But there's a fuzzy overlap. So for example, and this is a, a um, very contentious area, the deployment of machine learning systems by parole boards across the country, sold by for-profit companies, they're saying, well, we give us the data and we will predict who will be a recidivist, who's gonna go back out on the streets and do it again, and who's clean? Who is it safe to release? Well, that's a matter of judgment. But that immediately feeds into perhaps the single biggest and most visible problem that is now being very seriously debated in many, many forums. And that is, 
the bias in the data. The system may do a great job of predicting who's going to be arrested again. But if you have a certain population that is arrested many, many more times than the underlying behavior would justify, in other words, that is subject to biased policing, the system is going to replicate that bias, but it's going to present it as if it is an objective prediction. Oh, 100%. It'll offer no real intelligent uh, discerning ability. There's no you know, value sieve there. You're, but, you're but there's nothing, a, nothing new. Just an extrapolation. But there's an extra. What is new? There is something new, Alex. And this is what's dangerous. There's a, a phrase that's kind of floating around that I heard first from a terrific British scholar at the Oxford Internet Institute named Gina Neff, says that machine learning is money laundering for bias. The bias in the data gets translated into an objective prediction. Oh, that's that correct. No, you, you need, one thing I've learned in applying machine learning is you, you need essentially a buffer training zone. And, and, and training is so important, people don't realize it because all machine learning tries to do is be the momentum player and look for what's happening and try to copy what's happening. If anything, they're the most obvious uh, assistant ever out there. And so, you know, yeah. I, I would not be a fan of the machine learning for the parole boards. I don't think that, off the top of my head, that sounds like a losing scenario. Uh, one of my good friends, Edward Mitby, who runs AI for Vanguard, he actually also says that 70% of machine learning firms, in his opinion, don't actually use machine learning. He thinks they're called- Like, that's probably true. So, There's an old line that uh, this goes back. Uh, I remember I was speaking at a conference at MIT, at the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT almost 40 years ago. And the, um, at that point, we were just at the cusp where people who were doing really serious advanced computer science were making fun of the people doing artificial intelligence. But because of the manner in which AI then, the expert system, got promoted and promoted in the stock market as well as in academic circles, it flipped. And a year later, everybody who was doing advanced computer science said, oh, we're doing AI because that's cool, that's hot, that's, that's, the, next, that's the next frontier. And you're absolutely right. A lot of, of, of routine, regular algorithm writing that doesn't involve uh, using Jeff Hinton's deep techniques for multi-level machine learning are being promoted as if they were. Yeah, though technically a dishwasher is AI, it's an intelligent system, it can follow an intelligent set of instructions and commands. But your money laundering for data was a fantastic, I'm, I'm going to use that because that is so apt, it's so correct. Uh, money laundering for bias. Money now, laundering for bias, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Alex, one, one question that clearly, when you get over to the FinTech world, one question that is very paramount is the, the auditability of these systems. They, take, they generate a prediction which feeds and sometimes automatically feeds without human intervention into a judgment. The judgment is, are we gonna grant credit to individual X or business Y or not? Well, if that judgment gets challenged, how do you find out? Is it possible to go back inside the system and understand what happened in the random forest? What happened in the gradient descent 
adjustment of weight. These are the technical buzzwords used by the people building these systems. What was actually going on to generate that judgment? There's a great deal of work. It's really important work going on at the most theoretical and then at the most practical level to make these systems sufficiently transparent that they can be audited by independent third parties. That's going to be really important going forward. Bill, I think you know my partner, Spencer Greenberg's father, Glenn Greenberg, also the founder of Chieftain Capital and Brave Warrior. So oh, yeah. Something Spencer worked on for a few years was software to interpret our machine learning so that you know, we could find you know, the 50, 250 uh, you know, uh, factors that influenced the prediction. And, you know, it's funny, Spencer said, and I, and I stole it, you know, that, uh, you know, he used to always say that, you know, machine learning is so stupid and people don't realize it, but it, it really is so stupid and it has to be so finely applied and people have such a vaunted view of it through, I guess, media and the press, yeah. and, you know, all these fantastic movies going back to Matthew Broderick's 40 years ago, that War Games movie. They've really managed to make the perception of AI machine learning uh, quite something spectacular when it's really just a pattern seeker and how well have you applied it in the data set? Right. How really, how clean is your data set is more important right. to me half the time, probably most of the time, right. you know? Well, you so, know, it, it's now some 60 years since the great Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the, the book that became 2001, uh, said that any sufficiently advanced technology first presents itself as magic. And I think the machine learning systems are consumed as if, as if they, were, they were magic. But this, this issue of transparency, auditability is, is going to be very important as these systems are adopted, as they are deployed, particularly in the financial world, in regulated environments. There's another question that is still more theoretical Mm -hmm. Although, you know, the Waymo guys at Google, the Uber people are trying to make it a lot more uh, relevant and Elon Musk and Elon Musk can make anything relevant that he chooses to. And that's, that's the issue of, of agency. As these systems are deployed in the real world, in the physical world, where they are in charge of physical systems autonomous vehicle, for example. Who is responsible? Where does agency lie? Who is the insurance company hmm. insuring? Is it the owner of the car? Is it the manufacturer, the assembler of the car? Is it the writer of the code? Is it the tester of the algorithms? That question is going to be really, really important. It reminds me of the People versus Paul's graph, the, uh, the, the case from the 20s, where it was the first time that you know, liability could not be, you know, the woman was in the 1920s, Long Island Railroad, and it was by chance she got hurt. But, you know, can we have companies have no culpability because of, you know, oh, oh it's the machine learning, you know, it's not our fault. Your, your point about agencies is really, uh, you know, very, I, I couldn't agree more with it. it it's a philosophical, but, but it's also, Reality, it's not just philosophical. How are we going to deal with this going right. forward? We're going to be filled with autonomous vehicles over the next five to 10 years. It's going to be a, a Niagara Falls, like, you know, 
it's, it's gonna it's gonna hit us left and right. And yes, it's been slow, but all, all new technologies are slow. And yes, two twenty was supposed to be the year. It came out maybe it's two twenty three or two twenty five. Right, but three, five, or ten years. At some point, we're going to see this gigantic change in our culture, and five G is going to be you know a huge facilitator of that. So, well, it, you're absolutely right, Alex. This is going to be out there on the roads before we have set up the regulatory structural insurance environment for it. We're gonna be learning by doing once again. This has happened before in advancing technology, uh, but it can be very challenging. There, there are two other related issues, uh, which are um, at one level, theoretical, philosophical, if you, said, like, you might say, but another level are intensely practical. The first is, and this is very widely shared in the community of the most advanced AI theorists and practitioners in academia, but also at Google, at Microsoft, at Amazon, at Apple. And this is the question of common sense, physical common sense. The most sophisticated robotic systems that have been funded by DARPA that are being tested and applied have no idea of the law of gravity. They have no ability to generalize the way a one and a half year old child can generalize from a physical experience 100%. Into, into an environmental knowledge and understanding. Uh, there's a brilliant guy called Rodney Brooks who, um, oh, right, yeah. No, Rodney's a hero of mine. Well, Rodney, you know, for, for your audience, just to summarize, Rodney at MIT was responsible for merging the computer science and the AI labs, two very different cultures, into one of the most powerful research centers in the world. And then he went on to be arguably the most successful entrepreneur yet in the world of robots because he invented the Zumba. And um, he uh, has, um, he's now work, working on a, a, a new project, which, which is very definitely involved about how do we bring the kind of physical common sense that a one-year-old human infant has into a, a system that is interacting with the real world. Well, Bill, you know, a firm like Warburg Pincus, an established private equity player, how did they then decide how to invest going forward? Do they go only technology? Do they obviously want to increase the technology exposure? And then in human resources, how much of our new hires should be analysts? And of that pool, how much of their technology background should they have? I mean, how does a firm like a Goldman Sachs also, you know, pivot towards the technology world we're dealing with tomorrow? I, I certainly can't speak for Goldman Sachs. Um, and I really, I'm really uh, uh, an affiliate of Warburg Pincus no longer and haven't been a, an active decision-making partner for a long time. But what I can tell you is, first of all, Warburg Pincus is a very large firm. I mean, it's uh -huh. investing yeah, funds yeah. at the scale of $15 billion. So you guys are one of the largest products on the planet. Yes. Yeah. But, but what I can tell you is that what we and every other committed, serious, engaged investor is recognizing is that these technologies, the digital technologies, are pervading all aspects of economic life, yeah. all aspects of business, some relatively primitive technology, some extremely sophisticated. Uh, on the one hand, Warburg was the founding investor in an extraordinarily successful 
frontier technology startup called CrowdStrike, mm -hmm. which I dare say you, you and your audience have heard of. It's been a hugely successful cybersecurity firm, a public company. Um, on the other hand, a great deal of the investing we do is in what you might think of as relatively mundane businesses, but their competitive position is based on their mastery of understanding the value of the data that their business and their customers and their interaction with their customers are generating and how to use that data to deliver a higher quality service to their customers. That's, you know, it, it, in a micro way, of course, it's where Amazon got started um, and many, many other and the, the digital giants. But this is now technology, digital technology today versus 25 years ago. Uh, digital technology today is really like air and water. It's what we swim in, it's what we breathe. Um, and it is the case that almost anyone recruited into a major financial firm is digitally proficient to an extent that even 15 years ago was unthinkable. No. Uh, just on, you, know, you just had to, in those days, you had to recruit computer science majors from college, people who've done master's degrees. Uh, now I think it's much, much more broad and, and, and general. And, you're, and in a way that's good because you can go back to hiring for intelligence, curiosity, integrity, <laughs> and, uh, and not just for a narrow technical skill set. 25 years ago, it was very different. 25 years ago, we were really operating at the frontier. Um, how do you adopt a database that is accessed by at most five people a time and all they're doing is lookups into one that is going to be accessed a million users at a time and they're gonna be executing transactions into that data. That was a really hard problem. That was the problem the BEA system solved back in the mid 90s. Well, speaking of BA systems, which by the way, the audience should know uh, was, you know, I think a $50 million equity investment that turned into nearly a $5 billion uh, return. Was seven, but who's counting? Seven. Oh my God. That's, uh, yeah, no, unbelievable. Was, was that the investment that taught you the most in your career or was there another investment that taught you the most? You well, you know, in, in, in my book, um, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy that you referred to, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole section of the book, a quarter of the book is about the journey that I made from getting interested in computers. And I was not a geek. I was not a nerd. I was, my, my doctorate was in economics. I had a keen interest in history and politics. But I, in the course of the 1970s, I began to realize that these, these computers were more than just flexible adding machines, that you could start building models, you could start simulating. I, I got very interested in that. And I wound up having the enormous privilege of spending, oh, about three years in and out of Xerox Park in Palo Alto, which was really the, the, the home base of the future. Yes, without a doubt. That's where Steve Jobs stole the idea for the, you know, the mouse. Well, that's, that's kind of, True. <laughs> Legend. But, um, but, but the, the path to being able to make the BEA investment, to understand first that the challenge was actually doable 
-hmm. Second, to be accepted as a partner by the three extraordinary individuals, Bill Coleman, Ed Scott, and Alfred Schwang, B-E-A, that's where the name, name came from. That took 20 years of, if you like, personal investment in learning both about the technology, learning how to speak the language of the technologists, but then also understanding how business models and financial markets were evolving at a time when venture capital in the late 70s was still a craft. It wasn't an industry. When IPOs for tech companies were so rare, they were extraordinarily rare. Back in the 70s, was Kleiner Perkins even around or was that an 80s? Yeah, KP had started. Arthur Rock was active. Uh, Ben Rock had gone back to the old Rockefeller family office. But it was only in 1979 that the rules for institutional investors, for pension funds, for, for fiduciaries were changed to allow them to put a, a, a small piece of the money they were responsible for into such risky assets as venture capital. And that's when the industry began to take off. But in any case, um, through, through the experience of, at, at Xerox Park, I got early, very early into the world of, of, of distributed computing. This was a world back in the 70s and into the 80s that was dominated by IBM. Computers were huge, hulking mainframes served in, uh, by, by people in white coats in separate rooms that were refrigerated and accessed by dumb terminals, terminals that had no processing power at all. To go from that to where we are today, took a series of extraordinary advances across multiple technologies, most now, above now, all in software. And that, that path is what led to BEA. Well, we're, we're at the end of our show. This has been a phenomenal talk. Uh, I, I, I couldn't be more grateful for you coming on today, Bill. You were really just a total uh, wealth of knowledge. And, um, you know, I, I guess if, if there was one thing you would want to leave uh, in the minds of our viewers, what would it be? Well, the, the, the future that we're trying to understand and, and prosper in, it's always going to be explored by trial and error and error. We're living under necessary conditions of uncertainty. That means, how do, well, it means that the central question is, how do you hedge? How do you hedge, not risk, not quantifiable, measurable risk. How do you hedge ignorance? And for me, that came down to a lesson that I learned again and again over the 35 years of my sabbatical from Cambridge. Um, That was cash and control. Enough cash that you're holding on the side so that when something unexpected, almost always bad happens, you can buy the time to find out what's going on and that you have enough control to do something about it, to change the parameters of the system and fight again, whether you sell the venture, whether you fire the CEO, or whether you repurpose what you've been doing. So cash and control for me was the twin secrets of successful venture investing. Bill, I couldn't agree more. As one of my favorites, uh, General Stonewall Jackson said, when faced with uncertainty, regroup and then surge ahead. So I, yes, I, I very much believe in uh, regrouping when faced with uncertainty. And uh, 
I, I couldn't be more thankful for the time we had today. Please stay safe during these crazy times. And uh, you were absolutely a fantastic guest. Couldn't be more Thank happy. you so much, Alex. Enjoyed it. Pleasure was mine.